This is Sheree Scott. Welcome to my podcast, Mumbai to Maine. Join me as I take a deep dive into Maine's food story, past, present, and future. This episode is part of a special series celebrating Maine's bicentennial. This bicentennial series is sponsored by Eat Maine. To celebrate Maine's bicentennial, Maine Magazine is creating a visually rich anthology commemorating the people, places, and things that have molded Maine's culture over the last 200 years. In every monthly issue, the magazine will showcase present-day Mainers, promoting and elevating our state, and shine a spotlight on the organizations and leaders that are forging Maine's path into its next century. So I got everything together. My mother wasn't yet home. It was just me and my brothers because my mother worked full time. And my poor mother got home. The house stunk of deep frying. There was a pot of oil on the stove that had never gotten quite hot enough to fry the donuts. So there was some greasy paper towel and little lumps of gray dough that I tried to fill with jelly with a turkey baster. was not a success. Um, I must think my mother was just glad that I didn't burn the house down. Welcome to Mumbai to Maine. My guest today is Susan Axelrod, Food and Special Projects Editor for Maine Magazine and Maine Home and Design. Over the last few years, Susan has covered scores of food and lifestyle features on prominent and up-and-coming culinary tastemakers in Maine. This episode documents the interesting twists and turns in Susan's personal and professional journey in food and how she found her way from New Jersey to Maine. Hi, Susan. Hi, Cherie. I'm so thrilled to have you here as our first inaugural guest from Mumbai to Maine's Culinary Podcast. And I am thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for making it in the storm today. Yes, we are headed into winter, I guess, aren't we? So tell me about um, your first love affair with food, Susan. Um, How old were you when you first remembered falling in love with the whole idea of food? Well, it's it's kind of embarrassing, actually, because I was pretty young. And um, in my family, we had plenty of food, but it was more about eating to live, not living to eat. And I was a hungry and curious kid. And my first experience actually was donuts at a local bakery. And I would take my allowance money and go after school and buy donuts. And, and I actually got a little chubby as a result of that. So I had to um, be careful after a while. But That turned into just a fascination with food and cooking, and I loved watching Julia Child on The French Chef, and I don't know if anybody remembers Graham Kerr, the Galloping Gourmet, but I used to watch him as well, and anything I could see or read about food. Um, I had a babysitting job where they had all of the Time Life cookbooks that had recipes from around the world. And I decided that I was going to make these donuts one day after school. They were called, it's a funny name, they're Austrian Cropping Fashion. And I know, sounds funny, but that's their name. (laughs) And they're jelly-filled donuts. So (laughs) I got everything together. My mother wasn't yet home. It was just me and my brothers because my mother worked full time. 
And my poor mother got home. The house stunk of deep frying. There was a pot of oil on the stove that had never gotten quite hot enough to fry the donuts. So there was some greasy paper towel and little lumps of gray dough that I tried to fill with jelly with a turkey baster was not a success. Um, I must think my mother was just glad that I didn't burn the house down. I bet she was. (laughs) Now, what was your influence with cooking in terms of your mom? Like, was she she a great cook? Um, No, sorry, mom. She was not. She was a a very adept cook. I always joke that my mother can do 15 things with a pound of ground beef to feed a family of five very easily. But she was busy. She was working full time and cooking wasn't something she was terribly interested in. She had a few dishes that she would pull out for dinner parties. Paella was a specialty of hers and she liked to bake and she was very good at baking. But uh, dinner for our family, my two brothers and me and my mom and dad was was very often a casserole. And I was very curious and wanted to eat different things. So when the first gourmet shop opened in our neighborhood in Washington, D.C. and Brie Cheese was a brand new thing, I got on my bike and I rode down and I spent my hard-earned babysitting money on Brie Cheese. And my, I came home and my mother was completely mystified. She said, we have cheese. And I said, well, you know, Velveeta is not cheese, mom. So we still giggle about that. <laughs> So now I'm assuming that your mom was like, wow, this is perfect. I'm going to have a little gourmet cook in my house and I don't have to cook dinner when I come home. Did she ever take advantage of your interest in food and did you ever step up to the plate? She did. And as a matter of fact, my parents gave me for my 14th Christmas, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, Volume 1. And I still have the book. And way before Julie and Julia, the movie, I I don't think I cooked every single recipe, but I cooked an awful lot of them and baked an awful lot of the desserts. And so I would continually try things to surprise my family. I went away to school in my sophomore year in high school. But for a few years before that, I was doing a lot of the cooking at home. And I, my mother definitely, I think, appreciated it. What well, were yeah. one of your favorite dishes that you ever cooked out of that book? Do you remember? Um, there was a soup I used to make all the time called soup au pistou, which has a, it's essentially a vegetable soup. And then you make a pesto, the pistou, uh, with basil and you stir that into the soup. Uh, there were also, um, I, I loved making coco vin. I love Julia's coco vin. And I made a, a chicken with mushroom dish that I don't think was actually from that book, but I used to even make it for my friends' parents' dinner parties. They would pay me to make this dish, and I would bring it over. And um, and I also made a cold lemon souffle that was kind of a signature dessert, too. So, yeah, I had a f- I was catering when I was a kid. <laughs> wow. And what, what were you doing with all this money? Were you investing in more cookbooks, or were you buying more appliances to bake with and cook with? Like, where were you... Where were you stashing all this cash? I was probably buying food <laughs> and ingredients. And and occasionally, you know, Washington, D.C. back in those days was not the big restaurant town it is now. But we did have some nice gourmet shops. So I would frequent them and, and buy treats for myself. That was pretty much it. Now, I think in conversation once you told me that you catered a party for professors in your college. Yes. I, when I got to college, I always needed to earn money. And so I catered parties for professors. I even catered one wedding. I guess it was a second wedding where I made the wedding cake and the whole thing. Um, and my senior year, I bid on the contract for the senior concert, which included the band of Clarence Clemens, who's Bruce Springsteen's saxophone player. 
um, Clarence, you know, musicians, you know, this musicians have their, I forget what it's called, but their sheet where they say, you know, I want green M&Ms or whatever it is. Well, Clarence wanted a seafood dinner. I knew how to do that. I had spent my summers in Maine. So I used a kitchen in a friend's off-campus apartment and made crab cakes and boiled lobster and shrimp. And I can't remember everything I made, but it was a huge platter because he's a big guy and brought it over. And he was thrilled. And a few years later, after I graduated college in 1984, I saw Springsteen at the, what was then, it was before it was Giant Stadium, but it was that stadium. And I went to the corner of the stage, as you could do then, you can't do this now, and asked for Clarence Clemens' manager. And he invited me to sit on the stage. And when Clarence saw me um, in the in the backstage hallway, he looked at me and he said, I remember you, you cooked me that seafood dinner at Trinity College. And it was a huge moment for me because I was a big Springsteen fan. Wow, that's so, awesome. Yeah. What a great story. Yeah, it was fun. So you had like your Courtney Cox moment where you came up on stage <laughs> at a Bruce Springsteen concert. I did, except I sat in the back on packing boxes. I was not in the front dancing with Bruce. Yeah, but you're, <laughs> hanging out, you're hanging out with the saxophonist <laughs> and talking to him about food. That's a whole nother level yeah, there. Yeah, that was fun. So um, did you know then that you wanted to, you know, create a living cooking and catering and maybe one day opening up a restaurant? I mean, what did you go to school for? What were you in college for? I have a degree in French and Italian literature, which, you know, enabled me to read menus. And um, also I did spend a semester in Rome, which was very eye-opening, obviously, in terms of food. And I still make a uh, spaghetti carbonara that I think is is really authentic and delicious. And it's one of my go-to meals. Um, but I never considered going to culinary school. And today, I don't know why. You know, I, um, I think I really thought I wanted to be in hospitality. So I got a job at the Plaza Hotel, and uh, which is where I met my first husband, who was a cook. And I would spend every spare minute in the kitchen watching what they did. You know, as you can imagine, it was an enormous hotel kitchen. And they had their own herb garden in there under grow lights. And it was a fascinating place. And this is when the plaza, of course, was still the plaza. It wasn't condos. And we did a lot of very high-level catering. I worked in the catering department and really learned how big deal parties were planned, which helped me as I went further and started a catering business. But uh, yeah, the cooking, I, I always scratch my head why I didn't go to culinary school, but I didn't. Yeah. So if you had sort of gone back in time, do you think you would have taken off and gone to the CIA or? Uh... I think I might have, you know, I never had heard of the CIA. And so to me, the, until much later, obviously, to me, the only way to sort of do what I loved was to cater and perhaps work in hotels um, because I also love the hospitality business. I loved the sort of the pace of it and the excitement of things being different all the time. So it just never occurred to me until I met my first husband um, and we decided to open a restaurant. His family had been in the restaurant business and we decided to open a restaurant together. So that was the first time that it really ever occurred to me. So what was your vision for the restaurant? Was it like a cafe or? Uh, we opened in Ridgewood, New Jersey, which was a really pretty suburb outside of New York City, um, more like a New England town, really, with a town square. And so we named our business Village Green because it had a view of the Village Green. We were a big 
it's probably politically incorrect to say now, but we were a big ladies lunch place. There was no place where a lot of women who had worked full time, but now they were staying home, raising their kids. Their husbands were in the city. They wanted to meet after committee meetings and, you know, dropping their kids off at school and they had no place to go. So we, it was very inspired by the silver palette. You know, we had curried chicken salad and chicken artichoke salad, and you could get an assortment of salads on a plate, homemade baked goods. We made scones before anybody was making scones. And it was very, very popular. We used to, we had 50 seats and we did about 80 lunches on an average weekday. And uh, then on the weekends, we did dinners and we did a lot of off-premise catering. So that was the the backbone of our business was the lunch. And then these women would hire us to cater their parties. And then they would come in on the we- on the weekends and bring their husbands. It was not at the time a town where people went out to dinner during the week. We became very popular over the years for people to celebrate big occasions. I had more than one person tell me they had conceived their children after a nice dinner at Village Green. So um, it, that's really when the dinner business was um a thing was on the weekends because they were just too busy doing other things during the week. And if they were going to pick up dinner, Chinese or pizza, that was one thing, but they weren't going to come and sit and have a nice dinner, at least at that time. Now, Susan, I have a question to ask you. You've never gone to culinary school, yet you're managing a very successful catering and restaurant cafe business for what, almost nine years, eight years? 10 years. 10 years. 10 years. Yes. The last two years I ran it on my own um, because my husband and I had separated and um, I hired a chef for a short period of time and then decided I can do this. And it's also the biggest salary and I need to pay myself that money. So I had learned a lot over the years by osmosis, by watching what I saw my ex-husband and other chefs do. And the menu was fairly simple. We There were a lot of great flavors. We were known for our crab cakes, which we served with a tricolor coleslaw and sweet potato fries, which were actually baked, not fried. We didn't have a fry later in the restaurant. And I kept it simple. We didn't serve any steak because my feeling was it's very expensive. And if you screw up a steak, it's a, it's a big problem. So at the time, a lot of people didn't cook fish at home. I still think that's true. A lot of people get intimidated by cooking fish. So, and I knew how to cook fish again from coming to Maine in the summers. And my mother would very often cook beautiful pieces of haddock or cod. And so I would create fish entrees and people loved that fish and seafood. So we did a lot of that and just used a lot of farm fresh vegetables and really simple, but highly flavorful accompaniments. And for instance, we used to do a three mustard crusted chicken breast with a horseradish cranberry relish and a couscous, you know, not complicated, but at the time, you know, beautiful on the plate and served with asparagus or another green vegetable. And so that kind of thing where we were bringing the bright flavors and the fresh flavors, but without trying to get into heavy sauces and all that sort of thing. And I would also do things like lamb shanks that I could braise all day. Or I also made the silver palette seafood lasagna all the time, which I heartily recommend. Ooh, tell us about that. What's what's in the seafood lasagna from Silver Palette? Well, it's got scallops and shrimp and mussels. You know, it's a production to make it because you have to cook the mussels in advance, take them out of the shell, and you have to cook all the seafood separately. And then you assemble the lasagna and it has a creamy uh, tomato sauce that goes in between the layers. And you can make it with spinach pasta, which looks really pretty. 
And I can make an enormous pan of that and then cut it up and reheat it and sauce it. And it looked gorgeous, tasted delicious, you know, sprinkled with a little fresh parsley. And so dishes like that were something that I really tried to incorporate as well. Because again, nobody was making that at home. It was just too complicated. Now, what made you want to sort of get out of the whole catering business and turn to food writing. How did that part of your life pivot? And why did it happen? And when did it happen? In the fall of 1999, we opened in August of 89. In the fall of 99, people had money to spend. Somebody came to me and wanted to buy the restaurant. And I didn't know what to do, so I spoke to people that I trusted and I, my accountant and my attorney, and they said, sell it. You're crazy. I had a little boy. He was four years old. I was working a lot of hours, and I was missing being able to put him to bed at night. So I sold the restaurant, and my last night in operation was the millennial millennium New Year's Eve. And we had a big blowout party with a live band and all of our regular customers and champagne and caviar. And it was, we went out with a bang. And then I woke up, I think on January 2nd or something and said, oh my God, what do I do now? So I had a friend who owned a small group of community newspapers and he invited me to come and work for him as his managing editor, everybody else was a freelancer and I was really the only editorial staff person. And I'd done a lot of writing in college. I'd been on my college newspaper and I really loved it. And we were sold to a larger newspaper company and fast forward, I became a community newspaper editor and then in charge of a group of community newspapers and then food editor at a magazine owned by the same company and ultimately food editor at The Daily that the company owned. And that was my last job before I moved to Maine. What an incredible transition. So you went from like diving into the food scene and now writing about the food scene. What was that pace like for you, the change? It was very similar in a lot of ways, putting out a newspaper, putting out any publication, you know, to putting out meals. You're only as good as your last one. And you have to keep doing it over and over and over again. You know, it's not one of those jobs that sort of has a, a start and an end. I mean, you you just keep repeating what you're doing. And if you're successful in a restaurant, people will come back. If you're successful in a publication, people will keep reading what you write and keep subscribing. Um, and I felt very, very lucky to land the job as food editor at The Daily. It was not at all common for people in the weekly division, which is where I had been working at both the weekly papers and the magazine to make the transition to the daily. But I had a good in there with the former food editor who was retiring to do something else. And I loved that job. I supervised a full-time restaurant critic who was very, very good at what she did. And I also had several other writers that were under my purview. And I covered not only food, but health and wellness. So from a features perspective, you know, we didn't write about hospitals, but we would write about health issues and wellness issues from a features perspective. I did a cooking column called In Your Kitchen every week where I took a recipe from a cookbook because I got sent a gazillion cookbooks and I wanted to try to do something with them. So I would cook and describe the steps. My husband would photograph them. And then I would take notes and say, well, the next time I would do this differently. 
Um, so that was a lot of fun. Unfortunately, that newspaper company was bought by Gannett. And so none of that content lives anywhere anymore. It's all gone. It's all oh, offline. That's a shame. I know. I know my my columns. So I apologize if you've pinned one of my recipes on Pinterest because you can't get it anymore. So <laughs> yeah. But that's the newspaper business today. It's tough. When we come back, Susan talks about her transition from New Jersey to Maine as her professional career in food and feature writing evolves at Maine Magazine. But first, a few words from our media sponsor, Eat Maine. Stick around. Eat Maine explores Maine's diverse and dynamic food and drink scene, from restaurants, distilleries, and breweries, to farmers and foragers, cheesemakers, and chocolatiers. Find these compelling stories in every issue of Maine Magazine, online and on Instagram at Eat Maine. If you are enjoying this podcast, please take a second to hit the subscribe button on your app. To learn more about today's guest, visit my blog, mumbaitomaine.com. Welcome back to Mumbai to Maine's podcast with my guest, Susan Axelrod. Next, we discuss Susan's transition from New Jersey to Maine as a professional food and features writer and the memorable stories that resonated with her as we usher in Maine's bicentennial. So having had all this experience, you had this connection back here in Maine with your parents who lived who lived right here in Southport, Southport, Maine. At what point did you realize that Maine was where you wanted to be full time as, as a writer? I think it was I was I was noticing all the change in the food scene in Maine and visited Portland with my husband Ted uh, when he was still shooting a lot of food photography. And we did a freelance magazine story together about Portland. And it wasn't entirely about the food scene. It was sort of a travel piece for a now defunct magazine. But we really took a deep dive into the food scene in the restaurants and thought, wow, we could really live here. And that's when the wheels really started turning. I think my son was a junior in high school at that point. And so we decided when he graduated from high school that we would really investigate making the move. And that's what we did. So you and Ted started a blog. Mm-hmm. What was the name of the blog? Spoon and Shutter. That's really cool. Because I can imagine you with that Julia Child spoon in your hand, that wooden spoon, and Ted with his camera. Yes, yes. So how did Spoon and Shutter give you a start here in Maine? Because I'm assuming that the blog was like your portfolio of, of things that you could both collaborate on together. Mm-hmm. Yep. We met working at a magazine, the magazine 201 in New Jersey. And he left after a fairly short period of time to go full-time freelance. And we really missed shooting food pieces together. So that's why we started the blog in 2010 when blogging was pretty, you know, much in its infancy. So we what it, we did go to a number of events and we would preview things that we had written for other publications on the blog and then link off. So when we did this piece on Portland, for this other magazine, we got a fair amount of interest in it and from main publications. And we ended up doing some work for a magazine called Northeast Flavor that was covering all of New England. And eventually I was able to use all of that portfolio to land the job as founding editor of Eater Maine, which I started 
about a year before I moved to Maine. So I would get up at six o'clock in the morning, blog on Eater Maine for an hour or so, and then go to my job as food editor at the newspaper. In New Jersey. In New Jersey. Yes. So you were writing about the Maine food scene as the only sort of daily blog post on food in Maine, but you were in New Jersey. How were you doing that? It wasn't the only one. There was Portland Food Map, um, and there were a couple of others around, but Eater was a big player in the scene. Um, There was actually a lot of distrust from about for me, of me, because I came from New Jersey. Um, And there was a lot of criticism on Eater, you know, who is this woman? But I did, we did come about a month, a a weekend out of every month. And I spent a lot of time in communication with people. And so I really did know a fair amount. And and Ted at the time had been shooting a lot of the restaurants and working with um, magazines and other food clients in Maine. So he had a big toehold in the food scene as well. So I, I was connected to a lot of people through him. Um, but what the Eater job allowed me to do is when I finally did move here, I was able to sort of parlay that experience into getting a job at the Press Herald. Portland Press Herald, I should say, which wasn't necessarily a food writing job, although I did some of that, but it gave me local media experience, which was really, I think, a good thing. But what a thrill for you to be sitting in New Jersey writing about food in Maine. It was. It was a huge thrill. And Eater was fun because you could be a little snarky. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't really get to do that otherwise. So a snarky food writer from New Jersey writing about (laughs) Maine. Gee, I wonder how popular you were. (laughs) I toned it down. You, uh, at the time, you know, if you read Eater LA or Eater, I'm talking about Los Angeles, not Lewiston, Auburn. Um or Eater Austin, or any of the big city eaters, they all had some serious snark, and I had to be pretty careful. I mean, there were a few people that I kind of enjoyed making fun of in a nice way, but I knew Maine was a different marketplace, so I had to be I had to be a little nicer than some of the other editors were. See, and that's what I love about Maine. I love that we can sort of, you know, be very inclusive and supportive of each other, and I think um, you would echo that a lot of the chefs in Maine feel the same way, especially in the Portland food scene where, you know, you actually written an article about it where a lot of them said a rising tide, you know, helps all ships. So you want to talk about that food scene? I, I'd love to. And I will say that that is one of the things that immediately impressed me about Maine in general, but Portland in particular. You know, there it's a high concentration, as we know, of really extraordinarily excellent restaurants, uh, perhaps more than any other city of this, its size in the country, I would say, almost certainly. And these chefs eat in each other's restaurants. They plan events together. They collaborate on a variety of things. And it's not just the chefs. It's the brewers do it too. It's everybody involved in the food scene. You know, you'll have a brewer work with a coffee company with, you know, with a coffee by design or another one of the coffee companies to brew a special coffee stout together. And these kind of collaborations happen all the time. And so that's one of the, yes, there's a lot of talent here. We have extraordinary ingredients here. Maine was doing farm to table before it was even a term, uh, way back to when Sam Hayward opened 4th Street. And Rob Evans opened um, Duck Fat. But even before, you know, all of that stuff hit the national radar, Maine was doing it. And we're they're still doing it. They're still continuing to innovate and surprise and find new ways to create exciting 
um, not only meals, but products. And experiences. And experiences. Absolutely. And it just, it's, people say, oh, is there a bubble? And I don't think so. I mean, it just seems to be, you know, if you, if you come to Maine and you open a restaurant and you're true to yourself and you're true to your vision and you're using quality ingredients and you're treating people well, you will succeed. Absolutely. No question. So Susan, as the editor, as the food editor for Maine Magazine and Eat Maine, how do you decide what what is story worthy to you when there's so much going on in Maine, so many different innovators, um, artisanal handcraft producers, um, folks that are, you know, maybe not sort of successful at this point, but you know they're going to peak at some point. How do you decide who makes the editorial calendar? There's a couple of different factors. Um, one of them is simply access. You know, sometimes a really cool story sort of drops in our lap. Um, you know, you came to me with the Mumbai to Maine story that we're going to f- have in the food issue, which is August. Um, but every issue has four food stories in it. One is called Main Course, which is most often a larger restaurant feature. Then we have something called Word of Mouth, which is an interview with a chef or other food maker, a piece called Barside, which is about beverages, and most often wine, beer, cocktails. And then we have uh, something called Craveworthy, which is a listicle of sorts of, just for an example, you know, eight great lobster rolls kind of thing, or um, where to warm up with a bowl of ramen this winter, or handmade pasta, that sort of thing. So it's a roundup. But also, each issue of Maine Magazine has a general theme. Sometimes the food stories coordinate with that theme. For instance, the entrepreneurship issue, which is January, the stories on Atlantic Sea Farms and on Split Rock Distilling are have sort of an entrepreneur bent to them. And also the main course feature, which is on Amira Bread, um, which it's an Iraqi immigrant that created this business that has two locations in Portland. So, and then for the camp issue, for instance, we might do a feature on campfire cooking, but it's not a hard and fast rule. Basically what we're doing is looking to tell the best, most interesting stories, seasonally appropriate, and beautiful photography is always a big thing for us. So we always try to make sure that whatever we're doing, it's going to make itself, um, make it possible to shoot good photography because without the photography, it doesn't really work for main magazine. So that's basically it. And it's not, there's not a hard and fast rule. Uh, we're just looking to tell great stories wherever they come from. Oh, and diversity and inclusion of other parts of Maine are important too. I know we get some people who think, oh, you only cover Portland and Southern Maine. Well, it is where we're located and it is where most people live but we try very hard to get out to other parts of the country, of the state. I love the story you wrote on the quarry, um, and that was in Monson, Maine. Yes. And you drove out for that story, and it was a fantastic story. Can you tell us a little bit about the proprietor and the chef? Yes, it's a, it's, it was a really interesting story to tell. She's um, from the Philippines. She married um, an American serviceman in North Carolina who stationed at Fort Bragg, who actually happened to be from Monson. So he brought her to Munson and she fell in love with Munson and decided if I'm going to have a restaurant, this is where it's going to be. She went to culinary school in Bangor. um, And when the Libra Foundation started buying up a bunch of properties in Munson to create 
the artist's colony that's there now, or the arts um, in residence program, they asked Lulu, Mary Luranta, if she would feed the artists. And she said, only if I can have a restaurant that's open to the public. I love a woman so. who speaks up and speaks her mind and asks for what she wants. That's, that sounds like an immigrant experience to me right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. She's, she's fascinating and she's amazing at what she does. And it's probably the best deal in Maine. You can go to the quarry and get a five-course meal for $65 and wonderful wines. Um, of course, the wines are extra, but you will have an amazing experience. And in all likelihood, Mary Lou will come out of the kitchen and sit down with you and chat with you for a while while you're eating. When, when I went in to interview her and I did spend the night up there, she showed up at my table with a bottle of Tattinger Champagne. And we talked and drank that bottle of champagne and I ate my dinner and it was just, it was fabulous. I Does she still drive her Pontiac from Knight Rider? Yes. I don't know whether, no, she gave it to her son when he went off to college. So but, tell us a little bit about that. That that really spoke to me as an immigrant coming from Mumbai to Maine. You know, I had detailed dreams like she did. I always dream in detail and I still do. And I loved the Knight Rider. I mean, who, who didn't? But, you know... Um, when I read that intro to her story about how she told her friend, she was a maid, right? Yes. She was a part of a cleaning service and all her friends were basically like, oh, you're never going to go to America. And she said, oh, yes, I am. And one day I'm going to drive a car just like that, like the Knight Rider car. And she did come to America. She did. She did. Her first husband was also an American serviceman who she met in Manila when she was working as maid. And she came to the United States and she saved her money and she bought that Pontiac Firebird and just, it. I, I wanted to lead with that story because I thought that was just the coolest thing. And she had that car right up until her first child. So she has three children, one from her first marriage and two from her second. And it was her first son when he went off to college that she gave him the car. But it actually stayed in Maine um, most of the school year. And he was able to drive it later. So she got the car and she got the restaurant. That's right. This is America. This Mm -hmm. is Maine. You can have it all. That's what she said. What do you think has been in, in the time that you've been visiting since you were a kid? Mm-hmm. probably with, you know, coming up in the summers to now when you're in Maine full time and you're a food writer in Maine, what have you seen been the, probably the biggest change in the Portland food scene? Let's just say, say you were taking that as a bubble, food bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, have you noticed any distinct things that have stood out in all the years that you've been coming up and eating there? Um, and maybe that sort of talks about the whole food scene in Maine and how it's grown in the last 30, 40 years. Well, I think for the longest time, I mean, Maine has always been known for delicious fresh seafood. And that's been a big deal going back to, you know, my very young days in Booth Bay Harbor and on Southport eating lobster and eating scallops and mussels and clams um, and all the wonderful things that come out of our beautiful, pristine ocean. But I think that the expansion into so many other areas, uh, grass-fed beef and pastured lamb and beautiful cheeses made with local milk and honey from local beehives. And of course, all the delicious vegetables that people grow on their farms. And of course, Elliot Coleman pioneered the use of hoop houses. So now you have farms growing winter greens. Um, And so I think that the, I don't know of any other place in the country that 
offers the wealth of ingredients and food products that we do that cover such a broad spectrum. So now you have restaurants that are not only serving lobster and other fish from the ocean, but their their burger is from Pineland Farms beef that's you know ground just a few miles down the road. The lamb comes from North Star Sheep Farm. You know, the pork is local. Everything they're serving or just about is is coming from within a 50 mile radius. And that is pretty incredible to me. I think it is incredible. And I think when we take our children out to eat, um, you know, they they don't really realize that's happening when they're eating it. But I think as parents, we know that. And I think some of us make choices where we decide to eat that night based on that because we know where the food comes from. And a lot of the menus in Maine, if you hold them up to menus anywhere else in the country, they're different because they have so many farmers sourced and listed. And pridefully, you know, to say this is all sort of in our five-mile radius, we've sourced all of it. And some of them build their entire restaurants on that sort of premise that it is all locally sourced. Absolutely. And I should mention also, because we just ate this delicious bread, the grains that are now being grown in Maine. Maine, Maine used to be a big breadbasket area for uh, at least New England, if not a larger part of the country. And that died out over a period of time. I'm not quite sure why. But now there are lots of places, especially in the northern part of Maine, where they're growing these beautiful grains, and those grains are being used in locally baked bread. So, and then you have the whole foraging culture. You have mushrooms and and ramps and fiddleheads and ingredients that, you know, people find in the woods and in the meadows. And so there's just such an excitement about all of that, like how many different delicious foods can we either produce or find or raise or catch in Maine. So let let us talk about this beautiful bread that we <laughs> broke into today. So Susan and I decided that before we started the first podcast, we need to break some bread together because, you know, this is what life's about. It's about breaking bread together and and then of course dousing with a lot of good cheese and some lavender honey, which was incredibly good. But let's talk about Carrie Haney. I was really fascinated with the article you wrote on her um she owns Night Moves Bread and Pie Bakery in Bedford, and she has a really cool story. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about her and tell us more about her bread and the signature sourdough loaf that we had today? Yes, and I think that she is just doing incredible things with this bread. Not only is she using main grains, but she has her own mill in the bakery, so she is milling some grain as well, and she makes several different varieties. But her her sourdough is her big signature one, and it is bread that feels when you're eating it like it's good for you. You know, it's giving bread a good name. Bread sort of gets a bad rap, but as Carrie says, that's because there's a lot of bread that's not very good for you. It's made of highly processed flour. It's made of commercial yeast. So Susan, bread gets a bad rap, you know, so much of the time we talk about bread and it's it's never with a good connotation. Um, but this bread was just absolutely delicious. And as I was eating it, I felt it come alive on my palate. I don't know what it was really, but it, it, maybe it's the, the culture in the sourdough. Um, is it like a wild yeast or something that she uses to to create the culture when she starts starts the dough? 
yes, she creates that culture from uh, basically it's just the flour and water, and then you leave it open to the air. So the yeast that is in our environment is what ferments that culture. And she says, and I don't doubt her at all, that people, not people who are celiac, but people who are gluten intolerant can eat this bread because the enzymes in it are the same enzymes that are in our gut because they're in the water and the air around us, which makes perfect sense. So it's bread that nourishes you, doesn't just turn into sugar in your body, which is what a lot of commercial bread does. And it's the combination of both the local grains, the wild yeast, uh, that do that. It's not one or the other. But the lack of commercial yeast and the local grains are really the, the, the magic formula. So she used a really neat term. She called it the metaphors and life cycles of bread. I've never heard of that before. What was she trying to say with that? She is very philosophical about bread and has studied it extensively. And she believes that there's all kinds of things that go into the baking of the bread, which which I agree with as well. I think the person who's baking it, and of course her breads are, even though she's making them on a large scale, there's, they're made by hand, essentially. And so I think bread is a living thing. Yeast is a living organism. Flour that when it is not highly processed is also a living organism. And so it takes on the energy and kind of the spirit, if you will, of the person who's making it. And if you're making it with a full heart and and wanting to nourish people and feed people, then that makes a big difference. So I have some stats here on her because she is now making five times as much bread as she did last year. She has 40 wholesale accounts from Kennebunk to Belfast. So she bakes twice a week because it's a long process, right? And she bakes about 200 of these beautiful loaves, one of which we were so privileged to eat today. And I'm thinking to myself, like, she could really go big with this, but she's chosen to keep this at this scale because she can still manage it and put her karma, her good karma and all her philosophy on bread and life into every batch that she bakes. What do you think of that? I think you're seeing that in a lot of operations in Maine. Um, I think that's that's part of the Maine ethos, that let's keep it small and manageable and where we can keep the quality um, exactly how we want it to be. A lot of people like Carrie got into the businesses that they're in because they want to be makers. Uh, they don't want to turn into a factory. Uh, for example, I just interviewed um, the guys who opened Har- Split Rock Distilling in Newcastle, and they got into the business of distilling because they wanted to be makers, and this is what they decided to make. And they are making a lot more than they did when they started, but they're not going to all of a sudden sell to Seagram's and walk away with a big pile of cash. What they like is the making process, and they still want to keep a hand in that. And I think you see that whether it's a cheesemaker or a brewer, um, even a huge brewery like Allagash, for instance, um, by main standards, it's huge. Rob Todd is still, the founder, is still involved He's still hands-on there, and that's the way he wants it to be. I interviewed him recently for a a story as well, and 
he was very accessible. He was really easy to talk to. I mean, the only big sort of change that they've made recently is to put some of their beer in cans because then it's easier for convenience stores to sell rather than bottles. But in every other way, they may have scaled up and they may be brewing more beer. But again, they're not going to be turning around and selling to Anheuser-Busch. It's just not going to happen. They got into this business to be makers and they want to keep it that way. And he recently won a James Beard Award. He did. He did after being nominated several times. He won for, um, I think the title is Beer or wine professional, something like that, or craft beverage professional or something like that. That's huge. It's huge, yes. Well, we have, as you know, we have incredible James Beard Award winners in Maine. Again, for a state with only 1.4 million people, we have had quite a number of them. And we have 90 craft breweries in Maine. So, you know, the fact that he won one brings just, just brings a lot of attention to the 89 other brewers who, you know, who are proud to be in Maine crafting beer and having someone like Rob Todd sort of be you know, the award winner, it's all right. It's, it's good. It brings yes, it all back home. Absolutely. And again, you know, he does collaborations. People collaborate with him. He, you know, it's the just like with the chefs, the brewers are a very close-knit group of people. He hosts a big festival every year out in, at his place on Industrial Way, and there's other brewers there. And um, one year I went, I met um, Sam Calajone from Dogfish Head, who if people don't know, Dogfish Head takes its name from Southport Island, where there is an actual Dogfish Head. People sometimes wonder because he brews in Delaware, but there's a big main connection there. He has a house here, as you know. Um, and there's this god of beer brewing just wandering around the Allagash parking lot talking to people. Um, and of course, now Sam is partnered with um, uh, Sam Adams. Um, but that that actually, I heard Sam speak, that partnership was undertaken so they would not, either of them, either Sam Adams or Dogfish Head, get swallowed up by a big conglomerate. They did that strategically. Um, so it's that world is so tight and people are so generous in sharing their knowledge and sharing their excitement about it. When we return, we'll conclude my interview with Susan Axelrod, Food and Special Projects Editor for Maine Magazine. But before we do, if you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure to hit the subscribe button on your app and share it on your social media page. Better yet, visit my blog, mumbaitomaine.com, where I reconnect with my cultural roots through family recipes and nostalgic anecdotes. I hope this podcast inspires you to explore the best of Maine's food scene and your own culinary heritage. I would love to hear from you, so find me on Instagram at Mumbai to Maine or send me a note at mumbaitomaine.com. Thanks for staying with us. And now back to my interview with Susan. So Susan, I recently heard about the main beer box and it's this custom built 40 foot refrigerator that has like 78 taps that can be poured in any environment. And it was commissioned, I think a couple of years ago by the Maine Brewers Guild. And um, it's very cool because it's like this multi-year project and it can be literally shipped anywhere in the world and Maine beer can be poured anywhere in the world. And then the container can come back to Maine with the host's beer in it. 
to be poured here in Maine for a, for a beer festival. So it's sort of like this, you know, reciprocal, you know, Maine brewers ship beer over, they share beer, and then the host country brings the beer back to Maine for an international beer festival. So it's all like marketing, Goodwill Trade Commission, and economic development. Um, what, a, what a neat idea to um, bring the best of the world back to Maine and also ship out the best of what we have um, all over the world. Well, and I think that that is a perfect example of the innovation that you're seeing in Maine in connection to the food and beverage scene here. That it's not just we're making this beer and we're drinking it here and isn't that fun and delicious, but we're using it to proclaim the good news about Maine to the wider world. And that's really important, obviously, to economic development and to continue to attract people here to visit because still, no matter what, tourism and hospitality is our biggest industry. And so we want to get our products out there to people in other places, but we also want people to come here and experience them here. So you have, you know, the main brew bus, which is another innovative company that you can take the brew bus and you can travel around to breweries. You can go do a birding and beer main brew bus tour. You, they have all different ones. And now they're in Boston as well, but it started in Maine. And th- what a great way for people to experience breweries and not have to drive. And you get on the bus, you get all kinds of cool information about the breweries and anecdotal funny stories that you wouldn't get just by going around on your own and visiting them. So I think that that, that kind of innovation is what characterizes our, our food scene as much as any other aspect that we've talked about. I was a part of the Maine Food for Thought tour last year. Actually, at this time, it was one of their last tours they did before they sh- closed down for the season. And I I was just so taken with how well thought out the tour, you know, the way it was executed and how it was planned and how much thought was put into every part of what was served to us so that it aligned with educating all of us on the tour about Maine food systems. Um, I'm not sure if you've been on that tour. Could you tell us a little bit about what your thoughts were on it? I have. And, you know, um, they just won a big award for that tour in, in a national award. International. International. Yeah, I think award. it was That's one of the right. best was, food tours in the, world in the world or something. Kudos to Sarah and Bryce Hawk. I mean, wow. I was so impressed with that tour. I will sheepishly admit to being a little bit skeptical. I thought, another food tour, what am I going to really learn? I learned so many things that I didn't know and delivered in such a sophisticated, professional, yet just fascinating way. Uh, They clearly have so much knowledge and they give you that knowledge with such thoughtfulness and kindness. I mean, Food for Thought is the perfect name because they are thoughtful people and they do a really thoughtful job with these tours. It's, I have recommended those tours to people. I can't even tell you how many times because I think they're just absolutely fascinating. I was really, really taken with it and I'm excited to see where that goes and how much they diversify, whether it would be, you know, Drink for Thought, (laughs) (laughs) you know, all the different versions of it that they could come out with because as Maine grows, the story, the narrative keeps growing as well. And I think it'd be interesting to see how that all sort of evolves in the next hundred years in Maine's story. We are now in our bicentennial 
2020, 200 years from Maine's birthday. We are. 2020 is a big year, and that gives me a perfect opportunity to segue into what we're doing at Maine Magazine, which we're all very excited about. Ooh, tell us. Well, first of all, we've hired a bicentennial editor. Her name is Alex Polkinghorn. Uh, She is a Mainer. Her family's here, but she's been working in New York for the past number of years. She's worked at Vanity Fair, uh, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and she's brought some of that big city experience back to Maine, and we're very excited to have her on our team. We are planning a huge year um, in 2020. It's going to be a very big year for Maine Magazine. After all, we have the name of the state in our title, our, both of our titles, Maine and Maine Home and Design. So they're going, there's going to be special bicentennial coverage in every issue of Maine Magazine. And then the year will culminate in September with a special bicentennial issue for both Maine Magazine um, and Maine Home and Design. And there will also be a tremendous, splashy, wonderful party that we are going to be throwing for Maine as a birthday party. And we don't have all the details yet, but there's going to be some very special guests and we're super, super excited about it. So stay tuned. And we are very, very excited that uh, Mumbai to Maine gets to partner with Maine Magazine on this podcast. So how many food issues will Maine Magazine put out this year or eat Maine for the bicentennial? We have the food issue for 2020, which will be in August, and that will have very special bicentennial coverage. And and one thing I really want to um, stress is that while we are, of course, looking back at Maine's history, we're quite focused on looking forward. Where is Maine going? What are the new things that are happening? Who are the innovators and what are their stories? So, um, and then we will have Eat Maine, which is our annual dining guide, which will um, come out as usual in May. So speaking of innovation and in the next, you know, 100 years, where do you see Maine's food scene going? I know you were mentioning you were so excited about the story you were covering on Sea Kelp. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. I recently interviewed Brianna Warner, who's the CEO, president and CEO of Atlantic Sea Farms, which is the rebranded Ocean Approved. And Ocean Approved was the first commercial sea farm in the United States. They launched in 2009. And what Brianna has done is take this to a whole nother level where they, the company, is growing kelp seed which they are providing to fishermen, and fishermen are then setting up these sea farms in their own waters. You know, these are fishermen. They operate their own businessmen. When I, uh, businesses. When I say fishermen, I'm referring to lobstermen because, yes, we catch other fish in the Gulf of Maine, but by and large, it is a lobster fishery. And we are in a lobster boom right now, but who knows with climate change what's going to happen down the road. So it's important for these folks to be able to diversify their income. So they are growing kelp from Casco Bay to Eastport. And Atlantic Sea Farms guarantees it will buy back all that they harvest. And they turn it into a variety of products for both retail and food service, uh, starting with just a uh, fresh kelp product that's blanched, chilled, sliced into ribbons, and frozen. Makes the most delicious seaweed salad. And then they have three new fermented products, a sea chee, a beet kraut, beet sea kraut, which is a beautiful red color and would be amazing on a haddock reuben and or straight out of the jar, and also fermented seaweed salad. 
So this is a fabulous new development and a really fine example of innovation. Um, Brianna is a foreign former U.S. Foreign Service officer who is just a really incredibly talented forward thinker. And she's, by trade, she's a development economic, economic development economist. So this is something that she has really um, taken a deep dive into. And this year, there will be 24 fishermen that will be out there putting their lines out in the opposite season for lobsters. So it's a win-win for everybody. And that is very cool. And on the and the most important thing, that the kelp tastes delicious. If you did this and it was good for the economy and it didn't taste very good, it wouldn't matter. But it's so good and so good for you. So how does one go and buy one of these jars of beet, sea, kelp, kraut? Like, <laughs> and I have to tell you, I, I really don't want to pay a fortune for it because I don't know if I'm going to like it. You know, I want to support, but you're saying it tastes absolutely delicious. How different does it taste from, say, a seaweed salad that I get at, you know, um, my hibachi sushi place? Well, the seaweed salad you get at your sushi place is actually, and this was a huge surprise to me, not all that good for you. It's made from dehydrated, reconstituted, dyed seaweed that's grown in Asia in water that's very heavy in metal, namely lead. And by making that seaweed salad, which I always thought was the most healthy, delicious thing, it's as if, Brianna describes it as if you took a kale chip and soaked it in water and said, here, this is kale. No, it's not good. And it's and it's even worse than that because of the way it's grown. The advantage to eating this kelp and making, and there you can buy the frozen ready cut kelp and make it into your own seaweed salad with just a few ingredients. I made it last night actually, and it's absolutely delicious. What did you do with it? Tell me, tell me how you treated it. Well, you just thaw the packages. There's three, um, four ounce packages in each box. And so I made the whole thing because I knew that we would eat it all. And you add rice wine vinegar, a little sesame oil, some sesame seeds, a little bit of sriracha and some chopped up cucumber. That sounds delicious. And it's so good. It's a normal color green. It's not that weird, iridescent, bright, scary green that doesn't occur naturally in nature. Um, <laughs> and um, and it's so, so good for you. And all they really do with the kelp is they just clean it, blanch it, chill it, slice it. I'm not sure if it's in that order, but, and then they pack it, vacuum pack it. And it's chock full of vitamins. It's chock full of vitamins, has more calcium per ounce than any other food on the planet. It's got magnesium. It's got lots of iodine, which we don't get a lot of anymore because most of us are eating sea salt or kosher salt. We're not eating iodized salt. The other thing, product that they have that I love is the kelp cubes. And this is pureed kelp that you can drop into a smoothie and give it to your kids who won't eat a salad or broccoli and they won't even know what's in there. See, I'm so glad that you cover stories like this because along with not just helping her out and helping her, you know, get her word out, you've just really educated a whole bunch of people on this podcast because they're all out there listening going, I'm not touching that fake green stuff anymore that I see in the store. And they're going to go out and start looking for things that, you know, they know where it comes from and they know it's not reconstituted, rehydrated, dead sea kelp. Yes. And you can get that seaweed salad at Harbor Fish as well. So you can you can buy a lot of these products at, at, at Whole Foods. Um, the... 
gourmet markets and, and organic food stores such as Lois's and Rising Tide, Morning Glory, et cetera, also carry these products. But the fact that they're now at Whole Foods is great. And if you're a regular visitor to Harbor Fish, they will have it as well. And hopefully soon it will it will be in many other places. Their distribution is really growing. And you can get it at certain restaurants. Be Good, where I go for lunch at least once a week. And the Old Port has the um, sichi on a burger and also in a Korean grain bowl. So it's uh, it's being embraced pretty widely. And it's fascinating that this, and Brianna mentioned this as well, that this product that is generally associated with Asia, seaweed and seaweed salad, is being grown extremely successfully in Maine by Mainers in our clean, cold, clear water. And Mainers are benefiting from it. And now we just have to teach more people to taste it and like it. When you taste it right out of the of the bag, it tastes like green beans. It does not taste fishy. It does not taste like the ocean. So it's a great base to use to flavor. Now, I, I want to segue into another story that you wrote on sustainable fishing with the GMRI. And GMRI stands for Gulf of Maine Research Institute. And what I loved about reading this article was that it said your captive audience are really not the chefs and the restaurants where sustainable, you know, fish are now sort of featured on the menu, you know, as a way to collaborate with these chefs. But it's in hospitals. It's in schools. Um, you know, it's in places where kids are learning about their food and where it comes from or what, you know, what they thought it was and what it really is. Um, and I and I think it'd be very cool if someone like Brianna were able to, you know, sort of partner up with some sort of a system where the, all of this could be, you know, a smell station where they can smell the kelp and then they can taste the kelp and the kids can learn about it because they become our next food ambassadors. You know, they're the ones who really we put all our hope into. Uh, and they are your direct consumers because they are the generation that's going to want to know where everything's coming from and what the social impact is of that versus the economic impact, but how it affects their lives um, and their bodies. I think you're absolutely right. And I wouldn't be surprised if Brianna gets there eventually. She's only been at Atlantic Sea Farms for 18 months. So she's rolled out a lot of innovation in that time. They've Sounds gone like from yeah. being a kelp farming company to working with farmers to farm the kelp um, and turned out all these new products. The, um, the situation with GMRI, and and I think it is a perfect dovetail, the, the, the point is that there are products, we hear all the time that certain species have declined, you know, cod, for instance, has declined and is not considered sustainable. But there are all these other species out there in the ocean, uh, whether the, we are growing them like mussels and oysters and kelp, or we are fishing for the wild ones, uh, such as redfish or dogfish or mackerel. Um, mackerel, yes. Haddock. So those fish are, the problem is the fishermen aren't getting enough money for those fish in the market, so they don't have any incentive to catch them um, or don't have enough incentive to catch them. So that's sort of the conundrum that uh, GMRI is trying to, to um, alleviate. And Brianna, I do know that the kelp is on the salad bar at UCLA, so I think colleges are one way, you know, to really start to introduce these new products and new flavors to younger 
consumers. Uh, there are dogfish bites, which are manufactured, uh, or no, I shouldn't say manufactured, which are made commercially out of this very sustainable, very readily available dogfish. And they're being used in on college campuses across the country and including in Maine to make things like fish tacos, where it's all about the toppings that you're putting on them. The dogfish tastes just like a protein. It doesn't. Right. And they're called shark bites, right? Shark bites. Shark yep. bites. Yep. And I think that's really cool because I think Bowdoin College also participated in this initiative. It's called Out of the Blue, which is such a great name, by the way. Um, and they did it for a couple of weeks in October, you wrote. Um, and they took about, what, 2,000 pounds of underloved fish, as you quoted yes. it. Yes. And they basically doused it with a really yummy, spicy jalapeno vinaigrette and cilantro yogurt aioli. And those kids probably just ate it all up. Yes, they did. They did. But that's that's what you need to do. And and Barton Seaver, who lives here in Freeport and is a real seafood ambassador, I'm sure you've heard of Barton, says, you know, we're not going to really be able to make some of these fish really sustainable and it's not going to be profitable for the fishermen until we can get them into Walmart, until we can get them into large contract feeders. Um you know, until they're on the menu, you know, at these giant college campuses and other places where they just feed, you know, large numbers of people. And so that's, I think, the the real challenge. Yes, you go to a, a restaurant that participates in this program and they serve you a beautifully plated redfish. Redfish, by the way, if you see it in the supermarket, buy it. It's delicious. It's easy to cook. And it's a, it's a win. It tastes kind of like crouper. Very kind clean. Kind of. Very clean flavored. Yep. I came across the article that you wrote on Allison Lakin's Gorges Cheese, and I can explain where the name comes from. If okay, you so like. tell us more about yeah. Allison and the day that you spent with her that I'm so envious about. It was it was a pretty raw, cold day, and her creamery is just incredible. You you pull off, I guess it's on the Friendship Road in in Wilderboro. And she's got this wonderful big room with a giant table in the middle. And it's a room that she uses for uh, cooking classes and dinners and all kinds of things. And she came to cheese making kind of by accident. Um, she was very passionate about it, but her training, she worked in museums for a long time before she segued into cheese making. So she takes this very sort of systematic and thoughtful approach to cheese making, which of course you have to because there's so many different things involved, temperature and fermentation and lactic acid and all this different stuff that goes into it. Um, and she, the, the name comes from her name, obviously, Lakin, and the fact that she went to college at either Ithaca or Cornell, I can't remember. I think but, it's Cornell. Yeah, Cornell. But there, and Cornell is in Ithaca. And there's a saying there, Ithaca is gorgeous because there are these gorges that are sort of a geological um, marvel in that part of the country. So slightly a, a bit of a mouthful as a name, but that's where the, the name of the cheese came from. And she's just so fascinating to listen to. And I, she had all these cheeses out for us to taste. And I would taste one and think, oh, that's the best thing I ever ate. And then I would taste another one and think that's the best thing I ever ate. And it just kept going on like that. And at the time, she told me she had just a couple of cows and we went out to the field to visit the cows. And she also has pigs, she and her husband, um, and ducks and and uh, meat bird chickens, I think, or 
or laying hens, I can't remember. But anyway, full farm operation going on there. And eventually she'd like to be a farmstead cheese operation, which means that all the milk that she uses will come from her own cows. For now, she's getting milk elsewhere. Um, But the cheeses are just extraordinary. And again, it's a testimony to just the maker spirit of people in Maine and doing what they love and doing it really well. Did you know that Maine has 87 licensed cheesemakers? And this was a couple of years ago, so I'm sure that number has even gone up since then. Yes, it's pretty incredible. And so there's this Midcoast Maine cheese trail, and there's nine creameries, I think, on this trail. And this is just in Midcoast area, and all of them are run by women. Yes. yes. Why do you think so? I think that women have traditionally been cheesemakers, actually, um, because, and I don't, I, you know what? I don't have an answer to that question. I don't know why. But when I think about cheesemakers across the country that I've read about, they tend to be women as well. That's interesting because I actually read um, in an article in Culture, which is a publication solely devoted to cheese, how cool is that? Um, the the writer actually says that she probably thought it was more because the men have always sort of looked to the prestige and fame that comes with award cheese making, whereas the women are in it really just for the lifestyle. So what do you think about the lifestyle? What What in watching Allison in her day, what do you think captivates her in the cheese making lifestyle? Well, it's not easy work. I will say that it it um, there's definitely a rhythm to it, and I think it would be different if she were not keeping all the animals on the farm. You know, anytime you're dealing with lots of different animals, there's a lot more that you have to do. If she was just bringing in milk and making cheese and from it, that would be a different kind of situation. But I, she loves the farm lifestyle. And she's capitalized on that by offering these cooking classes and demonstrations and also hosting special farm dinners throughout the year, including in the winter. And I have never been able to get to one of those dinners, but every time I read about them, I think, oh, I've got to go another time. But, you know, fondue evenings and other evenings with music and wandering around in the, in the pastures. And, you know, so I think that, um, that whole lifestyle on the farm is very deeply connected to the cheese for her. And her husband is a woodworker, but he also makes sausage and handles all the meat side. And so when I visited her and learned about the cheese, I not only brought cheese home, but I bought some some of the most delicious pork chops I've ever had in my life um, that were in their freezer and cryovac and some other meats that I don't remember because it was a while ago. But um, so they've got almost sort of a full circle kind of operation going on there with the cheese and the and the meat and the various animals and the, and the garden and the things they're growing in the garden in season as well. I think that's pretty amazing um, that she's able to diversify as much. But I think also you need to diversify so that you can sustain, you know, that cheese making. And I think you've written somewhere that she had sort of thought that maybe if she could have rebranded, she would have done done that because she would have wanted to be sort of a farmstead cheese maker and be known for that um, right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yep. But it takes a while to build up the, um, the 
number of animals that you need to produce the amount of milk. And so I think that that's a kind of a big investment right off the bat. Well, thank you, Susan, for being here today. This was so much fun. We got to talk food in Maine, and we got to learn a lot about your story in food with some disastrous donuts. But look at where you are today. You're writing about some of the top food makers, innovators, artisanal handcrafted producers, and you're able to share all their great stories because of the wonderful foundation that you had in food all those years ago. Well, thank you. And I feel very, very lucky to be working for Maine Magazine and getting to do the stories that I do. And the best part about my job is, frankly, not the writing. That's always hard. Um, It's getting out and meeting people and hearing their stories. And I just feel so very lucky. I love to do what I do. And thank you very much. A special thank you to Susan Axelrod for joining me today. Coming up in the next episode, I will feature Sarah and Bryce Hawk, co-founders of Maine Food for Thought, an award-winning, insightful food tour based right out of Portland. Thanks for tuning in today. The audio and music for this podcast was produced by G3Logic Media Design. 